Zacchaeus. I never thought of the tree and the ladder, I have to say. Fantastic. But I have talked about Zacchaeus many, many times and a few times here as well. And for a long time, for a long time, my punchline, you guys were always the congregation that scuppered it. Ken tells it in his book. can't believe you wouldn't have read Ken's book by now, but if you haven't, half terms as good a time as any. But he talks about his farewell, and um, he talks about being sensitive to you as a congregation and not inviting uh, Jerry Adams to come to that particular event. And how you, the congregation, surprised Ken by inviting Jerry Adams to that event. And when I read the book, I thought that was really quite remarkable, his sensitivity towards you as a congregation and your sensitivity back towards him. But when I got to the punchline of my Zacchaeus stories, I always said, who is it up your tree? Who is the one you're not going to go and have dinner with? Might it be Jerry Adams? And there you were having dinner with Jerry Adams all along. But the question's still there. Who is it? Who is it that we beautifully envisioned the tall, prejudiced of us are making someone climb a tree to find Jesus? It's still there. We'll come back to it, no doubt, at the end. But let's put ourselves in the context of where we are. We're doing the lectionary. If you're a visitor among us, the lectionary is um, a, a lot of um, reformed Protestant churches have a revised lectionary, the Catholic Church of their lectionary, and sometimes they match. So I was doing a wedding yesterday with Father Martin, and on the way to the wedding, I said to him, are you on Zacchaeus in the morning? He says, indeed I am. And he seemed to be as poorly down his preparation at that stage of the weekend as I was at that particular time. However, he had to go home and find out um, the church that he was doing one of the masses in because he'd never been there, having moved to Ballyclare during the course of the last week. So the lectionary is this um, series that takes us through the Gospels once every three years and takes us through various other things. And Neville brought us to uh, one of the Old Testament readings in the prayers this morning. And we've been going through Luke, which we went through just about a year and a half ago when we did um, the travel narratives during Lent. And it's been interesting for me, maybe more this time for some reason, maybe because we've been going uh, for longer than just a few weeks and um, uh, I haven't been sharing the preaching, so I've been doing most of this. There are things that are building up that are just completely repetitive. And if you think they're repetitive as you hear them, Imagine me when I think they're repetitive as I prepare them during the week. But uh, if we take it even from just chapter 15, and we know that the, the travel narratives start at the end of chapter 9. But if we take it from even just from chapter 15, there's something going on between the Pharisees and Jesus. Um, he, the Pharisees are not happy at all at the people he's hanging out with. And so he tells the three stories uh, ending with the lost son. Um, then we find in chapter 16 the rich man and Lazarus. So wealth and poverty and the maintaining your wealth and self-indulgent with your wealth, selfish with your wealth. Then in chapter 17 we find the healing of the lepers. Again, people that would not have been hung out with and certainly not touched for healing. And that it's the Samaritan leper that comes back. So again, somebody in the margins is coming back to Jesus whereas the others don't. They keep the law in some ways or do what Jesus tells them then in chapter 18 we've had the Pharisee and the tax collector 
So the tax collector's coming back in again in chapter 19, but we've had that parable where Jesus talked about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And in between that, which we looked at last week and this week, we have the story of the rich young ruler who'd kept all the commandments, but then Jesus told him to sell all he had and give it to the poor, and he went away sad. So we have sinners finding salvation, we have angry Pharisees, And we have wealth being a stumbling block to the kingdom. This has been happening for chapters. The marginalized, the one on the outside, seeming to be the one who might be even on the inside, or the one that Jesus might be most drawn to. All these themes keep coming back, and then we get to Zacchaeus, another tax collector. But as well as being a tax collector, which if we remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee or the tax collector was the one on the margins that Jesus sent away justified, Zacchaeus in this story, as well as being the tax collector, is a wealthy person who Jesus has talked about in the last chapter with a rich young ruler, that it's like a camel trying to get through the eye of a needle for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Because Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector, he's the chief tax collector. So he's working with all the other tax collectors. And so there's probably a bit more thieving, and he's probably the cause of more oppression by what the tax collectors are doing and more hated by the community as a result. But he wants to see Jesus in verse 2. And apparently, the translation of that wanting to see Jesus, trying to see Jesus, the reason he had to go up the tree, is the same word that Jesus uses at the end of this story, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So Zacchaeus right at the outset is somebody who's dying to seek after who Jesus is. He was serious in his wanting to find out about Jesus. And as a result of that, he took humbling steps. Whereas the the Pharisee and the tax collector, the tax collector and the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector um, went down on his knees and beat his chest. This one humbles himself by climbing up. Could you imagine the scene Uh, somewhere around Belfast where one of our uh, leading civil servants, tax collectors, finds themselves climbing up a tree to see what's happening further down on the street. The crowd don't like him to start with. The crowd will be um, laughing at this guy who doesn't mind coming out into a crowd that he's not popular with and then climbing up a tree to see over this crowd because there's something about his seeking of Jesus that drives him to do that. Does he see that Jesus is the answer? And then that challenges his life. Or does his own guilt drive him to needing Jesus and needing some sort of hopefulness in Jesus coming alongside him? Now, uh, David asked an interesting question to the children. He said, how did he know Zacchaeus' name? And of course, we could say Jesus was omniscient and he knew all those kinds of things some of the commentators i was reading over the course of the last week were quite interested about this because some of them were suggesting that jesus was already aware that something was going on in zacchaeus's life because when it comes to zacchaeus um giving back um to those he'd robbed and giving this money a cut of his money to the poor that it's present tense so actually this could have been something that wasn't after jesus had met with him but something that was ongoing in zacchaeus's life i 
pondered all that for a while and thought, that's not going to have any relevance to what I really want to say in this story. So we'll leave it there for us to ponder and move on to a couple of things that maybe I would like to draw out. The first one of those is the power of incarnation. The power of incarnation. Come down out of that tree, come down that ladder, if it had only been so easy for him, I'm going to have dinner in your house. Meals, very important in Jesus' time. And here's Jesus again, breaking all the boundaries and getting the Pharisees all upset again because there he is again. He's going to eat at the house of a sinner. But Jesus' incarnational presence in someone's home and life is transformational. Presence. Jesus doesn't seem to, in the story certainly, Luke doesn't draw out that Jesus preaches when he gets to the house. The grace of Jesus inviting himself to eat with somebody who nobody else would eat with has this incredible incarnational power of God to transform. To transform. And we as a congregation... We as a denomination, we as the church in the 21st century have to again find that relational presence, incarnational power of God. There are people in our city right at this moment in time that if we just sat with them or invited them in for a meal or spent some time with them or a presence in their lives, it might be enough the power of God through his people to be transformational. Presence. Jesus could have, I've always said, he could have put a tax further up the tree, hammered it in, eternity where? The wages of sin is death, 316. And he could have walked past and got on with his life and said, Zacchaeus, climb on up there, fella. There's a message for you at the top. But he didn't. He said, come down, Zacchaeus. We're going to come, we're going to go home and have a meal. And of course this is interesting in the light of the chapter before. Because in the chapter before the rich person in the story, the rich young ruler goes away sad. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, it's impossible. It's impossible for a rich man. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. And then he says, but what's impossible with man is not impossible with God. Almost everything about this story seems impossible. That a chief tax collector would want to seek after Jesus. It's not likely. That Jesus would come and have dinner in his home. It's pretty impossible. That it would be revealed that this sinner exceeded the law by his generosity and giving things to others. That's pretty impossible. And that Jesus would declare not just him but his whole household saved. That's pretty impossible. That's the opposite of the story of the rich young ruler. Is Luke trying to say and trying to put this story beside the other story and say, ah, you see, rich people can be saved. Rich people can go through the eye of a needle. But if they're going to go through the eye of the needle, then the presence of God has to be that which will help them squeeze through it. But it's not impossible, Theophilus whoever it is that looks writing this particular gospel and the Acts of the Apostle to you. I'm imagining he wasn't an impoverished person. 
The other thing is that salvation in this story, and I've already alluded to it in the service, is inside and outside. It's internal, but the internal affects the outward. God's interruption of grace comes down to Zacchaeus. God's interruption of grace goes inward in Zacchaeus' soul. And God's interruption of grace comes back out again and reaches to those that he's been unjust towards and to the poor that he maybe never had a relationship with before. God's salvation, when it comes, changes us in the inside for sure. But that change in the inside will be revealed in the dramatic, radical ways that we live amongst other people. Social, missional power of salvation is right here at the start or in the middle of Zacchaeus' story. The marginalized and poor that Luke goes on and on about right throughout his gospel gets perhaps their biggest windfall in the story of Zacchaeus. And then I came to try and be that stage in my preparation. I was definitely looking at the rich young ruler and I was looking at Zacchaeus. And then I was looking at the rich young ruler, maybe the Pharisee, Zacchaeus, the tax collector. You can see how Luke is moving stories about here in his editorial that definitely weave in and out of each other. But I was taken with this idea of being lost and then found, of salvation and what that looks like. And it gives me a chance today to do what I could do on Friday. It was, um, without question, if you've been around me, the complete honor of my life to speak at my school prize day. For me, when I was a teenager, that was the first prize day I've ever been invited to. It was, it's interesting what goes on there. But I'll be very honest with you, really honest with you. I was really glad I was never invited before because while they went through all those boring speeches I used to be out playing football, I would have took the football on Friday as well. But it was an honor. And I remember being in school thinking, wouldn't it be great to... Um, to, to play for Northern Ireland and be asked back to, you know, speak at the prize day. Or maybe to play golf in the Ryder Cup and get invited back to maybe speak at the prize day. Or write a song, uh, maybe to speak at the prize day. Uh, I didn't think I'd be invited back as a Presbyterian minister. That wasn't top of my gig list when I was 14 or 15. But I remember the, the sort of, the, and we had just the best day. We were the king and queen of Balamina which is not something I ever really saw after, I have to be truthful either, but we were on Friday. But what I was trying to say to these prize-winning pupils at Balamine Academy and some of the ones that have gone on to university and are finding their first year at university lives, I was trying to talk about that mantra that I go on about, about our deep gladness meeting the world's deepest need, that Frederick Beekner quotation about vocation. Your deep gladness meeting the world's deepest need. And during that, I was trying to say to them that you could find your deep gladness. You could find that thing that you're made for, that thing that you're good at, that thing that you could be successful at, and still not have found life in all its fullness. You could have the deep gladness, but maybe not meeting the world's deepest need. But if we want to have salvation, if we want to have the wholeness that Jesus came to live and to die and to be raised to life to give us again, then it's really important that the two come together. That the deep gladness that we have for whatever it is we're good at meets something in the world's need. And I couldn't help as I was drawing this story together to, to consider for a moment that the rich young ruler may have had a deep gladness, maybe even a deep gladness in keeping the laws of God. Maybe really a religious deep gladness. There was maybe a satisfaction in him as he tried his best to keep the laws of God. But it was a self-indulgent, 
self-righteous deep gladness that was cut off halfway through the salvation deal. Because the salvation deal has the second part of it, where your deep gladness meets the world's deepest need, where it connects with the world, where it's not about me, it's about what this deep gladness does for others. Zacchaeus finds the salvation. He finds not only because he was maybe good at being a tax collector, he was maybe good with his accountancy, he was maybe good at all the stuff that he did, he was maybe good at topping all the books and making sure all the other wee tax collectors were doing what they should be doing. He maybe had a deep gladness in that. And he certainly had got himself some wealth out of that. But what changes when Jesus enters the fray? Jesus doesn't say, give up being a tax collector. But what happens is that he stops being a tax collector for his own selfish indulgence and starts to live for the world's deepest need. I give to the poor his first words. And that's what I was trying to get across on Friday. If these pupils at Balamina Academy want life in all its fullness, the 1010, if they want to know what it is to be a human being at the most potential of what a human being can be, then it's about our deepest need being saved by God to connect with the needs of our world. And I constantly ask myself, where is that happening? But on Friday, I took them to Onilaku. I would, wouldn't I? And I talked about our sponsor kids, Jacqueline and Rachel. And I talked about what I've said to you before, that when I look at Jacqueline and Rachel and I think, could they be a teacher? Could they be a nurse? Could they be a lawyer or a doctor or a businesswoman? Could they be a graphic designer? Could they be? When I think about what they could be, I don't think about what they could be for Rachel and Jacqueline. I think about what they could be for Uganda. Because if it's just for Rachel and Jacqueline, then Uganda doesn't get developed the way Uganda needs developed. And so when you think of education in Uganda... You think about the world's deepest need. You think about Uganda's need. It seems to me that the difference in these two stories is that the salvation that came to Zacchaeus' house was a salvation that put the deeper, deepest inward life of Zacchaeus together again that he might find the deepest gladness within his soul and that that would start to meet the deepest needs of our world. Which ends where we began. The deepest need of our city. The deepest need of our community. Who has the deepest need? Where are those with the deepest need? Are we keeping them away from the Jesus that can change their deepest need and make their gladness those that might affect others needs are we the big bullying tall ones that are keeping someone from Jesus and who might that someone be we got to keep asking let's pray together Lord, help us to know that deepest gladness. 
the gladness that Zacchaeus probably knew when you invited him down the tree. When you took him to his home and ate with him and showed him why he was made and born and now how he could be born again to do other things. Inner healing, salvation, wholeness. But immediately, immediately that inner gladness started to connect with the need of the world. Bringing justice to the injustices or the injustices that he'd caused. And going beyond that to look at the needs of a world to give to the poor. Lord, we pray this might happen in our own lives. That constantly we might be finding ourselves the wholeness of your salvation within us. Changing the inner desires and drives and ambitions. To give us life in all its fullness within. That will impact the deepest needs of the world. Outside. And may your spirit. May your spirit search deep within our hearts. To see who ours a case might be. Who are we keeping away from your love? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.